Welcome. This is Reading Through the New Testament. We're in a week, I believe this is number 35 for the week of August 28th through September 3rd. So I hope you're doing well this week. Um, we are sadly, uh, for some, you know, you might be sad because we're wrapping up summer. Summer is coming to a rapid close. Of course, that means the uh, beginning of fall and, uh, of course, football season. So, uh, you know, we uh, we lose one thing, we gain another, and uh, we, great, we gain that great American sport of American football. Um, the frozen tundras and all that stuff, um, um, you know, it makes me think of NFL films the, and the music and uh, um, things like that. But anyway, we're going to begin uh, this coming up now. So with uh, reading through the New Testament, that's what we're going to still read in the fall, right? We're still reading the Bible. We're still continuing and pressing on through the uh, New Testament. And one of the things that we're doing right now is we're uh, reading through the, uh, the the epistles of Paul. As we're getting into those epistles now where we really find ourselves every week reading multiple books now because we're in that sequence, right? So we were in Ephesians. Now we're in Philippians. We were in Galatians. Uh, we're going to be in Colossians. We're we're we're, we're marching through uh, these letters of Paul uh, that he wrote to the churches. And last week we began uh, with Ephesians. Uh, this week we're going to begin Ephesians three, four, five, and six, as well as Philippians chapter one. So you remember uh, Ephesians, like Philippians, is written while Paul is in prison. He's writing um, as a prisoner, as someone who is restricted. Uh, confined uh, because of his preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul is uh, has uh, spread the gospel message of salvation found in Christ alone, received through faith alone, to the glory of God alone, and he is in prison for that right now. Now, we're going to continue on here in Ephesians 1 and 2 because we talked about last or we talked last week right about how the Paul opens up in Ephesians 1 with this wonderful prayer this very long prayer blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us and then he goes around and as well talks about how salvation is by grace alone through faith alone we are saved by grace and he's also talking about here to this this church to be reminded that at one time the gentiles were separated from Christ you remember in the old testament during the old testament uh, before Christ came um, the the offer of the gospel was restricted basically to Israel now, if there were Gentiles who were saved, um, who did come, we think about Ruth or Naaman, people like that. But by and large, the offer of the gospel was not proclaimed universally yet. The, the, the gospel message uh, about Christ to come uh, was restricted to the bounds of Israel, basically. And that was because God had promised Abraham a long time ago. Remember what he had said? He said, I'm going to make you a blessing to all the families of the earth. But he said, first, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And so from Abraham, from this old man, he brought about a physical, real geopolitical nation, Israel. And they had their own land with their own government. Um, and uh, God res- really restricted and, and but kept safe the gospel there in the bounds of Israel. But then now with the coming of Christ, this gospel message goes not simply to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. So that now 
Jews and Gentiles through faith in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, are made the sons and the daughters of Abraham. As Paul writes in Galatians, as many of you as belong to Christ, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So this is what's happening now. The, the, the walls have come tumbling down, so to speak, between Jew and Gentile. And now, as we turn our attention to Ephesians uh, chapter 3, Paul is continuing in talking about how um, this was a, a thing that has been uniquely revealed in the New Testament. Gentiles, the promise was always focused towards Gentiles, but it's only come about in the New Testament in a, in a way that, that, um, that shows the great, uh, wonderful salvation that has always been available. Um, but now it's really come to full fruition. Now in the new Testament, Paul says this in Ephesians chapter three, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on your behalf, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. As I have written briefly, when you read this, you can, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I want to think about these verses here in this section right here in chapter three uh, from, again, Robert Pattison. This is the uh, guy we used last time. Uh, he was a Baptist minister in the 1800s, and Spurgeon thought very highly of his commentary on Ephesians. He was an American Baptist pastor, also like a college president. Um, yeah, uh, stuff like that. So he was an educator, smart guy. And um, so anyway, we want to um, we want to uh, help us. To, uh, to understand what he's saying here to us and what he can teach us about um, Ephesians. Okay, so let's go here, and I want to look here first about Ephesians uh, chapter 3, particularly verse 6, where he says that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in the gospel. Pattison writes this, one of the important elements of the gospel to which the apostle makes reference in the third, fourth, and fifth verses, and which he calls a mystery, now much more clearly revealed than formerly, was that the Gentiles should share with the Jews in its blessings. And this was talked about earlier in chapter 2, verses 4 through 17. He says this, They were to be heirs of God. The gospel was to make them children, and if children, then heirs, fellow heirs with the Jews, as truly children as the Jews, heirs of God, through Christ, heirs according to the promise, heirs of salvation, heirs according to the hope of eternal life. They're also of the same body. In the Christian church, Jew and Gentile are one. Whatever local separations there may be among the disciples of Christ, they are essentially one body and one spirit. Partakers of his promise in Christ, the object of the promise was the Messiah, and in him all spiritual blessings, and that these blessings should be extended to the Gentiles, that they should be partakers. The promise was first to Adam in the garden, the seed of the woman shall bruise the head of the serpent, specially to Abraham, in which the promise is made to include the race, in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Similar promises were frequent before Christ. 
Before, between Abraham and Christ, there were important limitations, restricting these promises to the literal posterity of Abraham. But no sooner had Christ come than they were extended without restrictions to all nations. The, command was, the commission was universal. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. We are liable to look upon the privileges of the gospel as the Jews did, as if an original inheritance to us. This is not the fact. In time past, we were not a people, but are now the people of God. We had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. But when the Gentiles first heard this gospel preached to them, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. This promise was in Christ by the gospel, made in him, realized in him by his death and by the preaching of his cross. He is the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world, and the field of the gospel is the world. So that's a helpful section to help us think about it, because the the radical thing that Paul here is saying is that we as Gentiles are not second-class citizens um, sometimes today, even I think, um, we can sometimes make a big distinction, too big of a distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles. Sometimes today we, we do that even today when we, um, think about maybe even the end times, or maybe when we think about salvation, Paul here is highlighting that while obviously there are Jews and Gentiles, while that, those, those, uh, those ethnic categories, I don't even know if that's the right word, but those categories are, do exist uh, in a sense, but they're, they're now eliminated by the gospel of Christ. Jews and Gentiles have the same Christ. We have the same God. We, we share the same eternal life. We get the same forgiveness of sins. We have the same problem because we're all humans. And, and so now this unity of the human race whether Jew or Gentile, um, is highlighting to us the fact that we all share these same wonderful privileges, and now we're part of the same body, the church. The church is, is the ultimate flowering of a new humanity. Um, and, and it's interesting, isn't it? God started uh, this, lo- prom- this process long ago. He talks about here in this book that partakers of the promise in Christ because long ago the promise of a Savior to come was given right after the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Right after man and the man and his woman and the woman have fallen into sin, whenever God comes, the Lord comes to curse, this, he comes and, and he curses the serpent, right? He says the seed of the woman will crush the seed of the serpent. And the seed of the woman, of course, was Jesus Christ, our Lord. He was promising a savior to come, a rescuer, a crusher, a victorious person who would conquer. And that is Christ. And later on in the gospel, or excuse me, in the Old Testament, we find out that the seed of the woman will now also be the seed of Abraham. It will come from Abraham's descendants. And so God also separates a nation apart. Uh, Abraham's natural uh, biological offspring through the promised seed of of Isaac and then eventually through Jacob um, become the nation of Israel. And God separates them as a nation. um, Their national privileges are given to them in order to bring Christ to the whole world. 
And so the promise all along was that, listen, God is bringing the seed of the woman. God is bringing the seed of Abraham. And later on, we know God is bringing the son of David. So it's all the same person. And this line is continuing until eventually we come to Jesus Christ. But now in Christ, we are partakers of the same promise of the seed of the woman, the son of Abraham, the son of David. We all believe in him, and we now share the same body. We're part of the same church. It's not like there's the Jewish church and the Christian church. We are all, or then the Gentile church, we are all in Christ, partakers of the same body. That's what Paul is highlighting here. We have the same wonderful gospel. But at the same time, it is important for us to remember that as Gentiles, um, you know, for from from Abraham's time till the coming of Christ, and and even uh, until the apostles went to preach the gospel, for that whole time, relatively speaking, Gentiles were in the dark as to the faith of the gospel. There were believers who came, but but we we were we were we were outside of the nation of Israel where the gospel offer of Christ was presented, but now. In Jesus Christ, that light that once dwelt and was basically confined within the bounds of Israel has burst forth to shed light upon the whole world now, to Egypt and to Italy and to Greece and now uh, to Europe, to Africa, to Asia, and now to the Western Hemisphere, to North and South America. So the gospel light has burst forth to proclaim and offer God in Jesus Christ as reconciled to men. So we have the gospel preached to us. We are partakers of the same gospel, the same promise, and share in the same body. So as we think about that, that's kind of what Paul is really emphasizing as one key theme here in Ephesians as you think about that. Now, now later on, uh, beginning in chapter 4, we have this second big division of the book of Ephesians. The first three chapters, right, are telling us primarily about what God has done for us. Now, beginning in chapter four, is the idea of now, in light of what God has done for you, and in light of what God has done in Jesus Christ, therefore, live this way. That is a key emphasis, by the way. The gospel message comes to us not like this. It doesn't say, if you do this, then God will do this. That is a way of thinking about law, which means that we're trying to earn something. We're trying to get wages. So if we think about the gospel message and our salvation in terms of, if I do this, then God will do this, we're thinking about it wrongly. The gospel message is, God has done this, and because he's done this, therefore, now you do this. God always takes the first step. God always lays the foundation and the basis and the ground and gives us the power to live in light of what he's done. And so that's exactly what happens because of what God's done in verse one of chapter four. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Again, Robert Pattison, I want to read here, uh, beginning here at um, uh, verse, uh, let's see here, um, Let's begin at verse 1. He says here about verse 1, this first verse is a general exhortation to a worthy religious life. 
It is incidentally enforced by the fact that he was a prisoner at Rome on their account, which the Gentile portion of the church would well understood and would be likely tenderly to appreciate, but chiefly enforced by the nature of their spiritual calling, called of God to be holy and without blame before him in love, to be children. Nothing could be worthy of such spiritual blessings but imminent godliness. In what manner believers would walk thus worthily, the apostle proceeds to specify. Now in verses 2 and 3, he says, with all lowliness, meekness, with long-suffering, and he says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. Um, he's right, he writes this, this distinction between lowliness and meekness is that lowliness, or as it is frequently translated, humility, implies ordinarily conscious unworthiness, or as is perhaps preferable, a sense of unworthiness. Not only are the feelings affected, but depressed, and when religion is involved, this depression is caused by a conviction of guilt and ill-desert, which always characterizes true repentance. Contrition is the chief element in the lowliness of this passage. It is the opposite of that pride and self-righteousness which characterize the Pharisee. The proud man is sufficient in himself, both in strength and goodness, while he despises others. Meekness, on the contrary, we mean when we used when used in distinction from humility, may be the feeling of one actually and consciously both strong and innocent. Though conscious of no feebleness, he is yet lowly. Though unconscious of guilt, he is not boastful. In his relations to others, he exercises his power and rights with gentleness. He is not conceited, making arrogant pretensions. He does not even claim all that he actually merits. Long-suffering is the patient endurance of evils of every kind, but here of evils wrongly inflicted by others, that is, not easily angry. This last idea is more fully expressed in the subsequent expression, forbearing one another in love, meeting the fragilities and even unkindnesses of others with gentleness and forgiveness. Love is both the ground and active principle of of such conduct, and the virtue and moral worth of it. Love is the fulfilling of the law. This is true not only as being what the law requires, to love God and our neighbor, but as a constraining principle. This affection, like all others, acts on the will and excites to activity. As here considered, it works no evil, but restrains and extinguishes anger. The last duty included in this exhortation is unity, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit The exhortation was occasioned and in some degree made necessary by the unlikeness of manners, education, and prejudices of the two classes comprising the Ephesian church, the Jews and the Gentiles. They were liable to come into collision and actually did so. What was true of them is in a greater or lesser degree true of all Christians. From this view, it is not difficult to apprehend the meaning of the exhortation to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit It means something more than mere concord. The word spirit does not simply mean mind. It means the mind as affected by the divine spirit. The condition of the human spirit, the heart, under the gracious influences of the spirit of God. These gracious exercises of the believer are not designated spiritual so much because they belong to the finite spirit, the soul, as because they are the fruit of the spirit. See 1 Corinthians 2.15, where such a one is called the spiritual. See also a catalog of the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, in Galatians 5.22 and 23. 
Such live in the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, which includes both the cause and the effect. They endeavor, therefore, to keep the unity of the Spirit, who cultivate by watchfulness and prayer these gracious tempers of Spirit. They who do this invite and cherish that Spirit who is their author. These exercises belong to the renewed soul. They are its furniture, wrought and adorned by the hand of the Spirit. This unity is to be sustained in the bond of peace. This peaceful influence, this bond which ties so many hearts, meeting and mingling like so many drops of water into one, is doubtless love, of which the apostle had just spoken, forbearing one another in love. Love makes hearts kindred. The Spirit gives oneness of doctrinal views, but love is its strong bond. This is the bond of peace. Now, that's very helpful again because as we think about what it means now to live in light of the gospel of Christ, there is actually, whenever we, whenever we believe the law and, and the gospel, we realize we have a lot to be humble for. It's not simply like, you don't have to be fake about it. You have more to be humble for than you even think so. Um, and so what he's saying here is, right, with all lowliness and meekness and long-suffering, he's calling us to, to, to now live in light of what God has done for us in Christ. If God has been so gracious and kind and compassionate and patient and long-suffering and slow to anger with us, well, shouldn't we be that way too with each other? and maintain that in the in our fellowship and our relationships in the church right the church as we look at it right it's some it, it, it's other people the person in the pew right next to you the the person that you talk to um after the sunday evening service the person you sit next to at sunday school the person that you take a meal to or you pray for, uh, the person maybe that you have struggles with sometimes, or maybe your personalities clash, or maybe they've said something intentionally or unintentionally that's harmed you. Um, any number, maybe they're family members or distant relations or very close relations. We are the body of Christ, each of us together, put together in him, and it takes humility as uh, the life of Christ pulses throughout the church as a living, breathing thing in our relationships, in our connections with one another, we need lowliness of heart, slowness to anger. We need to endeavor, and that means we got to work at it, to keep, to maintain, to guard the spirit, the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace of holiness and of wholeness so as we as we pursue as we think about the gospel of christ as we think about it and as we live our lives together as church as the body of christ here at monroe missionary baptist church as we live in our relationships with one another let's let's fight and endeavor to do all we can to maintain the spirit, the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Okay, one last uh, thing I think. Let me check here. Yeah, one last thing from Ephesians before we go into Philippians. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 18 through uh, 20. This is heading towards the end of uh, the book of, of Ephesians. And he writes this, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication 
To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Okay, so let's read a little bit here again from Robert Pattison. And he talks here about this exhortation uh, to prayer. He says, first of all, the subjects of our prayers mentioned are all saints. In 1 Timothy 2, 1, prayer is enjoined for all men, which is an obvious duty. But here, not to the exclusion of others, but because the object suggested this limited view for the saints with special reference to himself as one of them. Secondly, we have the object of prayer, so far as all saints are concerned, is left general. From the nature of the case, however, embracing all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. To confine it to their need of divine aid in the successful use of the panoply just described is without warrant. Though this was doubtless an essential object, so far as his own needs were an object, they they are specified that he who had a dispensation of the grace of God, who had been made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God by the effectual working of his power to preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, that he should feel the need of that divine aid which prayer only can procure and should entreat his brethren to intercede for him is reasonable. He needed divine teaching as to the mystery He needed boldness and eloquence to pray for individuals, to single out particular friends, converted or unconverted, and entreat God in their behalf, made importunate by a knowledge of their special circumstances, is a great aid to prayer. There is nothing pious in instinctive sympathy, but it is lovely and nourishes a spirit of devotion. The affections draw out the heart in prayer and render the habit of intercourse with Christ fixed and easy. And certainly the object was a worthy one, that he might be a faithful and able preacher. If the prayer of Solomon, that he should have given unto him an understanding heart to judge his people, was pleasing to the Lord, how much more this desire of the apostle, that he might preach the unsearchable riches of Christ as he ought, correctly, eloquently, and boldly. Eloquence or utterance, though to some extent a natural endowment and greatly improved by cultivation, is in its highest sense a gift of God and to be sought in prayer. The connection between eloquence and its religious effects on the hearts of hearers is as intimate as cause and effect in any department of morals. Men are to be reasoned with and to be persuaded. Nor nor ought even manner to be disregarded, yet the utterance for which the apostle desired his brethren to pray is doubtless described in 1 Corinthians 2. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Self-distrusting, he relied on the power of the Spirit to make a demonstration of the mystery of the gospel giving an apprehension which neither logic nor rhetoric could give. The circumstances also under which he preached the gospel required much courage. He was not only a prisoner in bonds, but was to appear as Christ's ambassador at the most august court in the world. A sense of duty must triumph over natural timidity. The union of modesty and moral courage is rare, but they are both essential qualifications in the preacher. Something more than eloquence and boldness is is requisite to make an able minister of the gospel. It is a minister to be made known. It is, excuse me, it is a mystery to be made known. Wisdom, not the wisdom of this world, but the wisdom of God. Spiritual illumination is indispensable. 
It is the word without and the spirit shining within in their reciprocal influence on the understanding and the heart, which can enable the preacher to perceive clearly and unfold lucidly the plan of salvation. He lastly closes here with, with all kinds of prayer, with all prayer and supplication, Paul talks about, right? He says this, Pattison, when prayer and supplication are united, as in this passage, prayer is more general than supplication, comprehending the general idea of worship. My house shall be called a house of prayer, that is, of religious worship. Supplication has stricter reference to need. Intercession is supplication in behalf of others, which as the scope shows must have been included in this exhortation. Prayer must be habitual, always, and watching thereunto with all perseverance. The injunction always to pray can be fulfilled only in the spirit of it. It is that spirit and readiness of the mind which is excited to prayer on every occasion and also watching for these occasions. Such a Christian is ever ever wakeful and thoughtful. Thoughtlessness is not only the occasion of many a fall, but care and persevering purpose are indispensable to keep alive the spirit and the habit of prayer. Thoughtlessness is wrong. Though it may be less blamable than deliberate, willful transgression, still there is in it an element of guilt. As it is essentially blameworthy in different degrees, no Christian should offer forgetfulness as an excuse for not praying. This duty of prayer is to be discharged in reliance on and under the actual influence of the Spirit in the Spirit. By His aid alone can acceptable prayer be offered. The Spirit teaches what to pray for, excites in us the suitable tempers, gives an earnestness. Here again we see it is our duty to have and to be what is plainly a gift. Our absolute dependence on the divine agency in no way affects our agency as it respects duty or privilege. It is as much our duty to pray in the Spirit as it is to pray. Not to pray in our necessities is as unnatural as it is to refuse food when hungry. The Spirit is not given us to make it our duty, but to aid us in its fulfillment. Not to avail ourselves of its gracious aid doubtless aggravates our guilt, but is not necessary to the obligation. Now, as we think about prayer, and as we think about what he says there, Paul gives specific things he says, I want you to pray for. And these are things, too, you could think about maybe praying for ministers or preachers as well. This idea of uh, perseverance and supplicate, uh, you know, the, or the, the idea of uh, proclaiming the mystery of the gospel, opening my mouth, uh, boldness. But also, as he points out, that it's helpful. It highlights, again, also that thing where if we know other people and their needs, it's so helpful for us in prayer. We can pray generally, but it is so helpful, isn't it, to know specific needs, specific concerns, specific struggles that people are going with, going through in their lives or whatever is going on, um, to be able to pray for that, to continue to pray in that and to persevere in that prayer. To pray in the Spirit, as he says, because we need the Spirit of God to help us in prayer. We cannot go it alone in prayer. We need the Holy Spirit. So that's Ephesians. And uh, yeah, I hope it's been it's been helpful to you there. I, I want to move on now, though, to Philippians and do one thing out of Philippians. Um, and in Philippians, I want to go back to Charles Spurgeon uh, again to, to read with But real quick, a few details as we now turn the page from Ephesians now to Philippians. um, A few details about it. Philippians is also, of course, written by Paul. 
probably is written before Ephesians, even though it comes after Ephesians. It's probably written around 59. I think Ephesians was written around 60. So Paul is Roman uh, is going through Roman imprisonment uh, still, but this is probably written before, and he's writing it to the church at Philippi. And as uh, one New Testament introduction uh, have right says this, the occasion he he wrote it on the occasion because of thanksgiving for the Philippians' partnership in the gospel and warnings against disunity and false teaching as hindrances to the spread of the gospel. So his purpose is to promote gospel-centered unity for the sake of advancing the gospel. That's what he's doing. He talks about this idea of partnership. We have a partnership in the gospel, a fellowship in the gospel. We work together. And so here's Paul writing in, in this book to these Christians at Philippi, and uh, he is excited. You can remember that one part where he talks about how some people preach the gospel. They're doing it not um, for good reasons, but at least Jesus Christ is being proclaimed, and, and Paul could take joy um, in that. Well, I want to preach here, or preach, I want to read a sermon uh, from Spurgeon. Uh, and he has it, his sermon here is called The Good Man's Life and Death. And it's based off of verse 21 of verse 1, where he says, for, me to, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul here is reflecting upon uh, um, that whatever happens, whatever happens, he's okay. And this is, I want to read some Spurgeon stuff here. This is so good. Um because he talks about the good man's life and the good man's death. He says this, As to his life, we have that briefly described thus. For to me, for me to live is Christ. The believer did not always live to Christ. When he was first born into this world, he was a slave of sin and an heir of wrath, even as others. Though he may have afterwards become the greatest of saints, yet until divine grace hath entered his heart, he is in the gall of bitterness and in the bonds of iniquity. He only begins to live to Christ when God, the Holy Spirit, convinceth him of his sin and of his desperate evil nature, and when by grace he is brought to see the dying Savior making a propitiation for his guilt. From that moment when by faith he sees the slaughtered victim of Calvary and casts his whole life on him to be saved, to be redeemed, to be preserved, and to be blessed by the virtue of his atonement and the greatness of his grace, from that moment the man begins to live to Christ. First of all, the life of a Christian derives its parentage from Christ. The righteous man has two lives. He has one which he has inherited from his parents. He looks back to an ancestral race of which he is the branch, and he traces his life to the parent stock. But he has a second life, a life spiritual, a life which is as much above mere mental life as mental life is above the life of the animal or the plant. And for the source of this spiritual life, he looks not to father or mother, nor to priest, nor man, nor to himself, but he looks to Christ. Christ is also the sustenance of his life um, because Christ is the food on which he feeds and the sustenance of his newborn spirit. Spurgeon also points out that the fashion of his life was Christ. Suppose that every man living has a model by which he endeavors to shape his life. When we start in life, we generally select some person or persons whose combined virtues shall be to us the mirror of perfection. Now, says Paul, if you ask me after what fashion I would mold my life and what is the model by which I would sculpture my being, I tell you, it is Christ. 
I have no fashion, no form, no model by which to shape my being, except the Lord Jesus Christ. So the model of his life is Christ. Spurgeon also goes on and says the end of his life is Christ. You think you see Paul land upon the shores of Philippi, there by the riverside where ships gathered and many merchant men. There you see the merchant busy with his ledger and looking over his, overlooking his cargo. And he paused and put his hand upon his brow and said as he griped his money bag, for me to live is gold. And there you see his humbler clerk employed in some plainer work, toiling for his master. And he, perspiring with work, mutters between his teeth, for me to live is to gain a bare subsistence. And there stands for a moment to listen to him, one with a studious face and a sallow countenance, and with a roll full of the mysterious characters of wisdom. Young man, he says, for me to live is learning. Aha, aha, says another who stands by, clothed in mail, with a helmet on his head. I scorn your modes of life. For me to live is glory. But there walks one, a humble, a humble tent maker called Paul. You see the lineaments of the Jew upon his face. And he steps into the middle of them all and says, for me to live is Christ. So Christ is the model that we live off of, Spurgeon says. He's the life that we derive our life from. He is the food upon which we continue to live our life. He's the goal of our life uh, for me to live as Christ. But also Spurgeon, or uh, Paul says this though, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. So Spurgeon talks about not only the good man's life, but also reflects upon the good man's death. What does Paul mean by all this? Well, Spurgeon writes this, my dear friends, when I discoursed upon the former part of the verse, it was all plain. No proof was needed. Ye believed it, for you saw it clearly. To live as Christ hath no paradox in it. But to die as gain is one of the gospel riddles which only the Christian can truly understand. To die is not gain if I look upon the merely visible. To die is loss. It is not gain. Hath not the dead man lost his wealth? Though he had piles of riches, can he take anything with him? So Spurgeon now is going to walk through and help us to think about Paul says to die is gain, but think about everything you lose in death. You know, you lose all these things, but then he says what we've lost, we regain. He says this, first of all, um, when we die, he lost his friends, but gained more in heaven. It says to die is gain. It looks as if it could not be thus, and certainly it is not so far as I can see, but put to your eye the telescope of faith. Take that magic glass, which pierces through the veil that parts us from the unseen anoint your eyes with eye salve and make them so bright that they can pierce the ether and see the unknown worlds come bathe yourself in this sea of light and live in holy revelation and disbelief or excuse me and belief and then look and ho how and oh how the change how change the scene here is the corpse but there is the spirit here is the clay but there is the soul here is the carcass but there the seraph he is supremely blessed his death is gain. Come now, what did he lose? I will show you that I will show that in everything he lost, he gained more. Have you ever thought about that, by the way? Everything you lose in this world, whatever you lose, you gain so much more in Christ in the world to come. Spurgeon writes, he lost his friends, did he? His wife and his children, his brethren in church fellowship are all led to weep his lost. Yes, he lost them, but my brethren, what did he gain? He gained more friends than e'er he lost. He had lost many in his lifetime, but he meets them all again. 
parents, brethren, and sisters who had died in youth or age and passed the stream before him all salute him on the further brink. There the mother meets her infant. There the father meets his children. There the venerable patriarch greets his family to the third and fourth generation. There brother clasps brother to his arms and husband meets with wife, no more to be married or given in marriage, but to live together like the angels of God. Some of us have more friends in heaven than in earth. We have more dear relations in glory than we have here. It is not so with all of us, but with some it is so. More have crossed the stream than are left behind. But if it be not so, yet what friends we have to meet us there? Oh, I reckon on the day of death it will be for if it were for the mere hope of seeing the bright spirits that are now before the throne to clasp the hand of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, to look into the face of Paul the Apostle and grasp the hand of Peter, to sit in flowery fields with Moses and David, to bask in the sunlight of bliss with John and Magdalene. Oh, how blessed! The company of poor imperfect saints on earth is good, but how much better the society of the redeemed. Death is no loss to us by way of friends. We leave a few, a little band behind, below, and say to them, Fear not, little flock. And we ascend to meet the armies of the living God, the hosts of his redeemed. To die is gain. Poor corpse, thou hast lost thy friends on earth. Nay, bright spirit, thou hast received a hundredfold in heaven. What else did we say he lost? We said he lost all his estate, all his substance, and, all, and his wealth. Aye, but he has gained infinitely more. Though he were rich as Chrysus, yet he might well give up his wealth for that which he hath attained. Were his fingers bright with pearls, and hath he lost their and hath he lost their brilliancy? The pearly gates of heaven glisten far brighter. Had he gold in his storehouse? Mark ye, the streets of heaven are paved with gold, and he is richer far. The mansions of the redeemed are far brighter dwelling places than the mansions of the richest here below. And as for the means of grace which we leave behind, what are they when compared with what we shall have hereafter? Oh, might I die at this hour? I think I would say something like this. Farewell, Sabbaths. I am going to the eternal Sabbath of the redeemed. Farewell, minister. I shall need no candle, neither light of the sun, wherein the Lord God shall give me light and be my life and forever and ever. Farewell, ye songs and sonnets of the blessed. Farewell, I shall not need your melodious burst. I shall hear the eternal and unceasing hallelujahs of the beatified. Farewell, ye prayers of God's people. My spirit shall hear forever the intercessions of my Lord and join with the noble army of martyrs in crying, O Lord, how long? Farewell, O Zion. Farewell, house of my love, home of my life. Farewell, ye temples where God's people sing and pray. Farewell, ye tents of Jacob where they daily burn their offering. I am going to a better Zion than you, to a brighter Jerusalem, to a temple that hath foundations whose builder and maker is God. We said that when men died, they lost their knowledge. We correct ourselves. Oh no, when the righteous die, they know infinitely more than they could have known on earth. There shall I see and hear and know all I desired or wished below, and every power find sweet employ in that eternal world of joy. Here we see through a glass darkly, but there face to face. There what eye hath not seen nor ear heard shall be fully manifest to us. Their riddles shall be unraveled, mysteries made plain, dark texts enlightened, hard providences made to appear wise. The meanest soul in heaven knows more of God than the greatest saint on earth. 
The greatest saint on earth may have it said of him. Nevertheless, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Not our mightiest divines understand so much of theology as the lambs of the flock of glory. Not the greatest masterminds of earth understand the millionth part of the mighty meanings which have been discovered by souls emancipated from clay. Yes, brethren, to die is gain. Take away, take away that hearse, remove that shroud. Come, put white plumes upon the horses' heads and let gilded trappings hang around them. There, take away that fife, that shrill-sounding music of the death march. Lend me the trumpet and the drum. Oh, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Why weep we the saints to heaven? Why need we lament? They are not dead. They are gone before. Stop, stop that mourning. Refrain thy tears. Clap your hands, clap your hands. They are supremely blessed, have done with care and sin and woe, and with their Savior rest. What, weep, weep, for heads that are crowned with coronals of heaven? Weep, weep, for hands that grasp the harps of gold? What, weep, for eyes that see the Redeemer? What, weep, for hearts that are washed from sin and are throbbing with eternal bliss? What, weep, for men that are in the Savior's bosom? No, weep for yourselves that you are here. Weep that the mandate has not come which bids you to die. Weep that you must tarry, but weep not for them. I see them turning back on you with loving wonder, and they exclaim, Why weepest thou? What, weep for poverty that is clothed in riches? What, weep for sickness that it hath inherited eternal health? What, weep for shame that it is glorified, and weep for sinful mortality that it hath become immaculate? Oh, weep not, but rejoice. If ye knew what it was that I have said unto you, and whither I have gone, ye would rejoice with a joy that no man should take from you. To die is gain. Ah, this makes the Christian long to die, makes him say, Oh, that the word were given, O Lord of hosts, the wave divide, and land us all in heaven. Well, that's Spurgeon. Good stuff, as usual, to be expected from the Prince of Preachers, um, um, Charles Spurgeon, to live as Christ, but to die is gain. Next week, we're going to continue in Philippians chapter 2, and we will also begin with Colossians. So we're going to be using Charles Spurgeon next week as well, um, and it should be a lot of fun. Thanks so much for listening. Take care, and God bless.